Proverbs 24. Turn there in your Bibles, please. So the word of the Lord. Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their hearts devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. By wisdom a house is built, by understanding it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength. A man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance, you can wage your war. And in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate he does not open his mouth. Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin. The scoffer is an abomination to mankind. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? My son, eat honey, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do no violence to his home. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the king. And do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster from them will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that will come from them both. These are also sayings of the wise. Partiality and judging is not good. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples and abhorred by the nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon him. Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. Prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. 
Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. I passed the field of a sluggard by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask your blessing upon the reading and the preaching of the word. Give help to the preacher that your spirit would speak. Give help to all of us as we listen. That our ears and hearts would be open. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am not so secretly dreading the day where I have teenagers in the home that learn to drive. Not sure I can conceive of a greater exercise in faith than teenagers driving. And it's funny the different tactics that parents take in order to accomplish that task. I think I was required to drive something like some 5,000 miles with my parents before I was allowed to get my license. Robert and I have a friend, uh, a family that has three boys, none of which were known at the time for having great sense, to be truthful. Um, And they made an interesting rule that the the sons were not allowed to ever turn left. (laughs) Ever. And it was funny because you'd be out with them. The youngest and I are good friends. And it'd be like an hour before he had to go home. This is before cell phones. It'd be an hour before he'd go home and he'd say, all right, I got to get ready. And you're like, brother, we got an hour. Like, we can play. He's like, no. And he'd walk out to the car and he'd come back in with the map. Because if you want to get anywhere without making a left turn, that's a really difficult thing to do. I mean, just think about your own situation just to get home from here. How do you do that without making a left turn? Now, if you live on that side of the church, Tom and Sherry, you'd be okay, maybe, if you could get into the neighborhood correctly. Almost all of the rest of us would be going home via 485. <laughs> because we would turn right out of the church and we would hit, went down until we hit 160. We'd turn right on 160 until we hit 49 and we'd have to come back home that way. Yeah. Good grief is correct. Now, those kiddos didn't have any accidents because they never turned left. <laughs> but it was an interesting thing to watch a 17 or 18-year-old young man, whatever, have to sit down with a map and plan out every turn he was going to make along the way. That was the rules. Those those were the brakes. That was the only way he got the keys to the car. And it's funny because you have people be like, oh, teenage boys can't plan well. 
Oh, no, they can when they're properly motivated. If it's stay home and hang out with mom and dad, or it's you get the keys to the car, man, that's a strong motivation to prepare. But, you know, it's funny when it comes time to talk about godliness, how much we treat each other the way that we treat teenage boys. Oh, when it comes to godliness, well, the people of God certainly can't plan They can't make any sort of map as to how they want to grow. It just kind of sort of happens along the way. And interestingly, when it's approached from that perspective, godliness just kind of sort of happens along the way for the people of God. Funny enough, it oftentimes results in a bunch of left turns and many times a bunch of accidents. Proverbs 24, in the way that we're going to examine it, is going to prevent, or present for us a bit of a pattern for how to accomplish godliness. Much like Robert and I's friend who would sit down with the map and have to actually mark it out on his map as to how to turn and where to go and what to do and places that might be a bit of a challenge and parking lots that he might have to cut through in order to avoid the turns and such. Proverbs 24 is going to do likewise for us. Now, it starts with the difficulty. It starts with the problem, and it kind of walks us through why so many people, so many saints of God, and ultimately the unbeliever in much worse fashion, do so badly. And it's going to present for us the great danger of evil desires. And you think, well, I'm certainly, I'm a Christian. I don't struggle with evil desires. How many of you are on a diet right now? Don't answer, please. How many of you are desiring and craving sugar? Or all the things that you can't eat. I mean, it doesn't matter whatever your diet is. Whatever you're told not to do, that's what you want. If you're diabetic, you crave dessert. If you have a head cold, you crave every dairy thing ever made to try to make your mucus worse. Our hearts are built like that. I mean, again, parents of young children, just tell any arbitrary rule to your child and watch them go, no, I have to break that. You don't even like what you're doing, but you desire evil things. Here it starts out in a beginning place maybe to be concerned for the believer is to consider just the way that evil desires begin to give birth in the heart. Verses 1 and 2, I think, Speak particularly clearly and carefully of this. Be not envious of evil men. And what a starting point to think of how often we immediately fall prey into comparative theology. Oh, look at that person. Look at their life. Look at how they're doing. Look at my own. Maybe theirs is a little bit better. Maybe theirs is a little bit easier. Maybe theirs is a little bit more prosperous. Maybe theirs is filled with a little bit more joy. It's why I hate social media so much in most forms and fashions is because it's creating, it's manufacturing, and it's monetizing that comparative process. And I hate to say it, women, y'all are the primary target they're aiming for to monetize that ability to look at someone else and say, you know what, I might like that little piece of their life. Ooh, that's a good idea. I'll copy what they're doing. 
Only here it's noting an envy that's connected not to godliness, not to holiness, but to evil desire. We're not talking about here a saint that's going, you know what, I wish I could pray like that person. I'm going to devote myself to prayer and see what God does. This is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the saint that's looking out and going, you know, uh, that person has it a little bit better. I know they may be bending the rules a little bit. They may be fudging the law. I, I still wanted to do it that way. Or even more, don't desire to be with them. And I think most of us in some form or fashion understood this when we were in high school or middle school, that that intense craving to try to be like the cool kids, even when the cool kids were the wicked kids. Like, man, I want to be a part of that group. I want to be involved. I want to have a little bit of social standing and not be known as the nerdy outcast. None of y'all would ever have felt that way. Maybe just Tom and me. But that craving, that longing that slowly kind of stews in the mind to say, I want to be like that person. I want to have them part of my life. I want to give them input into my desires and longings. And it's funny, when we talk with our middle school children or our high school children or elementary school children, we understand it. We're like, look, bad company corrupts good character. You have to be careful who you hang out with. You have to be careful what you value, what you think is important. And I don't listen to my own message, do I? Whereas we as adults do the same thing. Or our models, our ideals... Our longings are more and more shaped by our culture, our television, or the commercials, or social media, or whatever else. And we desire to be with them, and to be desired to be like them. It's a very subtle and very easy sort of envy that builds inside the heart. And it's interesting is that envy gets roots in your soul. It doesn't stop there. That's the nastiness with envy. It's not just that you get envious and then leave it be. But it builds. Verses 8 and 9 show us one of the side effects. It's not the only side effect, but one of them is that as these evil desires take root in our heart, uh, suddenly whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer, The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. Rather than just keeping it in the realm of envy, saying, you know, I'd I'd like to have those features, or I'd like to be famous like that, or I'd like to have wealth like that, or I'd like to whatever like that. Well, suddenly then we start stewing on all of the daydreams that might help us accomplish that. And again, most of us are probably, at least the adults in the room, are sophisticated enough that we very rarely actually find ourselves skidding, sitting down and drafting out a scheme of evil. I mean, it's not like, you know, in the movies, the wicked villain who's like, I will take over the world and destroy everybody by following these seven steps. 
And I would suggest probably for the adults in the room and certainly the children as well, the great danger is actually in our daydreams. The narratives that we retell in our head every single day. The daydreams of winning the lottery so that we don't actually have to be disciplined with our money. The daydreams of that malicious or unpleasant person that we have to deal with suddenly miraculously dying of some hideous disease. Maybe you don't have that fantasy. Maybe that's just my daydreams. But those things that we let build momentum in our minds. And we may not think we'll ever put action to any of it. But we still allow this scheming to take place. My favorite, for those that don't think particularly quickly on their feet, is to spend the next three weeks thinking about that one thing that you should have said that would have really got them. (laughs) Rather than spending the next three weeks thinking about what true godliness would have looked like in that situation. How might I showcase the holiness and the loveliness of the Lord Jesus rather than, man, what would Churchill have said to just embarrass the fool out of that person? Another way it ends up manifesting in 15 and 16 is where it becomes a commitment to our our cravings that surpasses decency and goodness and godliness. 15, it's taking advantage of other people where lying in wait against like a wicked man. Being willing to take advantage of those that are down. We say it here, kick someone when they're down, but in a moment of weakness, exploit them. There's a great illustration of this one from many years ago. There was a very famous music concert that was taking place up north, and they had planned very improperly. Uh, They did not expect to have 100,000 people show up or whatever it was, and they didn't have enough water. They had no drinking fountains and everything. So they were selling bottles of water, and I'm talking the little bottles of water, for $20 a piece to the concert goers. They're making a killing. And the water salesmen were loving life. I'm like, Really? You have people, it's 100 degrees outside with no water, and $20 a piece. Now, I understand how the market works and supply and demand, but valuing your own advantage at the sake of other people. It plays out the same way in 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. Again, this idea of uh, those envious cravings, those desires that we have to the point where it begins to impact our relationship with other people. And I'm not talking about like when you're playing a board game and the other person makes the really dumb move and you're like, yes, (laughs) it's over, you've finished, you're done. But how often do we feel that way actually when we deal with our adults or other people with reality? Like with real things, not board games which are fairly meaningless, but like with their jobs where we see somebody get fired because their own evil has caught up with them and we're like, I told you! <laughs> and rejoice. 
Again, it's this valuing self. It's valuing our own priorities. It's valuing our own desires far more than it's even valuing other people. And this same value set is displayed in verses 30 through 34. I pass by the field of a sluggard. Again, I do enjoy that word. The lazy man. The slothful. I walked past his field, I walked past his vineyard, and everything I saw was overgrown with thorns, and it was covered with nettles, the wall was broken down. I looked at it, I pondered it for a little bit, I gained a little bit of instruction, here's what I learned. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. Which I, I find this to be such an engaging interchange, because sleep is a good thing. Sleep is actually a great thing. You know, as they continue to do increasing science on what happens when your body doesn't sleep. You know what happens if you build a lifetime of not sleeping? Anybody know this answer? You get Alzheimer's. That's actually what they're finding now. It's massively connected to big-time brain problems of a lifetime of not sleeping. Sleep is one of the great gifts that God gives you for your health. You don't sleep, your immune system drops. You don't sleep, your brain rots. You don't sleep, your body falls apart. But interestingly, here what's happening is the slothful, the sluggard, has taken something that is good and made it so big that it becomes all-consuming and destroys the rest of life. Another word might be for this is just excess. Excess pleasure, excess desire. You see, we have a a situation here that's being framed out of an envious heart, a heart that's discontented with what God has given to the human, to his child, to his person, and instead it's manufacturing all kinds of evil things that comes out of it. And it's really interesting because I think most of us when we look at our lives, we'd probably say, well, I'm, I'm not a sluggard. I mean, sure, I take days off and stuff, but I'm not a sluggard. And I mean, I don't delight in my enemy's downfall most of the time, unless they've deserved it. And I certainly don't map out evil. I don't, I mean, you can read all of my writing stuff, my notes, my journal, whatever it is. And I don't have plans in there to do harm to people. I never actually write that down. Thank you for catching that. But again, how many of us, it's just, we have that envious heart boiling on the inside. That discontent with God's lot in life that he has assigned to us. Now, thankfully, I think Proverbs 24 paints a pretty graphic portrait of what brokenness looks like and how our hearts work, the lingering corruption of sin that remains inside. It also does present an alternative path. It gives us the the treatment. It's described the illness now by the Spirit of God. It gives us the treatment. Again, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge this treatment only works if you are already a child of God and you are filled with the Spirit of God, which those two things are synonymous. If you're trying this in your own power, your own might, your own ability, it's not going to be successful. But first, and it starts in verses 3 and 4, it's going to be illustrated in a slightly different way in 5 and 6, but you want a victory over this envious heart, these evil desires that work from the inside out, you have to have a proper plan. 
I mean, put slightly differently, you don't luck into godliness. Again, this is why my opening illustration was a, a teenage boy who had to plan out with a map. I mean, those things do still exist, but how to get home without making left turns? Look at what the author here says. By wisdom, a house is built. You don't just start building and hope that it ends up getting finished somehow. You don't just say, well, you know what? We'll start with this corner and hope that when we get to that corner, it matches. I mean, can you imagine if we did that out here? We're like, hey, you know what? We need a new building. Here's what we're going to do. All of us show up. And we'll roughly pick where the four corners go. And the front half of this room, you start on the back corner. And the back half of that room, you start on the front corner. And we'll start on the other two corners. This time we'll just all meet in the middle. It'll be fine, I promise. It'll all look good. Or if you've seen the, the picture of the bridge in Florida, this is my favorite. Where they started, it was one of the massive kind of like interstate bridges in Florida in the Keys where they started building on the, the two ends at the same time and somehow their math was wrong and they got completely off. But the best part is, and this is my favorite part about how the government works, is they continued building it until they got parallel. They didn't stop when they were like 50 yards apart and were like, oh no, we're not going to meet. They built it all the way until the two ends were where they should meet. And they're like, well, I mean... I know it's 40 yards that way to the rest of the road, but I hope it'll be okay. Wisdom is planning. It's, it's mapping out some sort of kind of concept of being intentional, of thinking through it. But wisdom a house is built by understanding it's established. It's not just something that's going to happen. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. I love that. I think most of us would say we desire, we desire to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, but then maybe sometimes we don't ever think about how to get that. We're just like, when is it going to show up? But five and six take a slightly alternative uh, version to the same point. A wise man is full of strength and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage war, and in abundance of counselors there's victory. Where is victory found? It's found in wise application of the strength God's given. 27 adds a slight tweak to this, which is uh, same kind of concept, same sort of um, illustration, but a little nuance added in. Prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build the house. Again, set your priorities correctly. You actually have to have an idea of what the plan is going to be and what has to be done first and what has to be done second. So when we go out there and all of us get ready to build our new church building, and some of you are like, you know what, I love roofing, we're on it, we're going to start roofing right now. And um, don't mean to be rude, but we don't have a roof yet because we don't have walls yet, because we don't have a foundation yet. It has to go in in the proper order. There have to be proper priorities. And this is perhaps the actual bigger challenge for the people of God. You see, many of us have grown up... I understand not everybody in here has grown up in the American church. That's fun. But many of us have grown up in a slice of the American church, which has told us that godliness equals busyness. 
I mean, I know I grew up in a part of the PCA that said that. It was never said that explicitly, but sometimes actually I think it might have been. But it was treated this way. It was to say that if you are a godly person, you will be a busy person. Because you'll be doing all of these things. It wasn't until I got older I realized that's a lie. That's a terrible lie. It's a tragic lie. No, see, a godly person is not necessarily someone who's going to be busy. A godly person is a person who's doing the right things. It's not an issue of quantity of things as much as it is an issue of quality of things. This has taken a slightly more suburban feel for young families to say that when you raise your children, young families, you get tricked into this lie. Good parenting is busy parenting. That if you have a healthy and and robust family, if you're actually doing a a good job training your children, well then, you know, Monday night you have this, Tuesday night you have this, Wednesday night you have this, Thursday night you have this, Friday night you have this, all day Saturday you have this thing, and you wake up and realize for a week you haven't had a family meal together at all. It's really interesting when it comes to wisdom, the value is certainly placed on quality over quantity the vast majority of the time. And here you have presented the idea of priorities. Where do you want your energies as a family to be spent? Now, recognizing that, that frames out kind of the activity set, but it doesn't tend and cultivate the heart the way that maybe we would like. It's the same way that when you're on a diet or you're trying to change a habit, you have to kind of keep certain things fixed in your brain in order to be successful at it. And those two things are you need to remember the bad and you need to remember the good. And laid out here, same thing, verses 13 and 14. He's presenting the good held out for his uh, listener very clearly. My son, eat honey. It's a metaphor. For it's good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Same way, uh, bigger point. Know that wisdom is the same as honey to your soul. If you find it, there'll be a future. Your hope will not be cut off. As you gain wisdom, you'll find that it's good. Wisdom is one of those things that the more that you employ it, the more you enjoy it. You'll find that you you never really enjoyed fighting with your parents in the first place. And when you've kind of forsaken that lifestyle, you go, you know, I don't really want to go back to that. It wasn't delightful. It wasn't enjoyable. Instead, wisdom is sweetness for the soul of the saints a delight in their heart. And the flip side of it is 19 and 20 to show, yeah, remember, there are consequences for lack of wisdom. You do the dumb things, bad consequences happen. Fret not yourself because of evildoers and be not anxious of the wicked. Why? Eh, The evil man has no future. He's going to die. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. You don't have to worry. You don't have to actually think about envying the wicked because you know that it's only a matter of time until they come to their end. And I might suggest 
that this whole kind of sort of thought process is one of those challenges that is real and deep and full for the American Christian raised on the diet of technology. Because we have exposure to things that we've never thought possible. I mean, you think about how many of the children of this church know the names and shapes of animals that you didn't know existed when you were a kid. The amount of information and exposure they see. See, we grew up, and depending on how old you are, your slice of life that you encountered was either this small when you were young, or maybe in my situation it was this big because I grew up just before the internet. But now because of all this, constant exposure to everything. And so we're getting envious of things that we didn't even know we were supposed to envy 50 years ago. And then on top of that, this idea of structuring life, and I would suggest that for us, for us and for most of us particularly, we need to really contemplate how we're living our lives. What are the priorities that we're setting? What are the things we're desiring? Because the good news is that Jesus wins. I mean, again, if you're a child of God, this is a message that's for you, that you actually have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you, taking your weak and modest and puny efforts and giving you yields far greater. He's the best investment ever because you invest such a little and, and weak amount, and he gives you so much blessing and yield and benefit and joy from it. And the challenge for us as we walk from here is to, as we celebrate the Lord Jesus and his redeeming work for the saints of God, that we celebrate the new life that he gives to his people freely, that we celebrate the fruit of the Spirit that are, with, that are already within us and that the Spirit is causing to be in us. That we work hard to actually examine the things that we're envying incorrectly. And then to work hard to kill them. Not the things that we're envying, but the desires in our heart, just to be clear. That's why if you read so much of the ancient church in the English language, they used a phrase talking about sanctification called mortifying. Talking about putting to death the desires of the flesh. And you see, mortification is not something that you, quote, luck into. You don't accidentally put desires to death. It's an active process and a hard one, but it's one that's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's something that we as God's people need to busy ourselves about, for that is the priority that is given to us. To honor the Lord and to obey Him, to delight in Him because of the redemption that He's given to us, and to rejoice in the victory that the Spirit accomplishes in the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We do confess that lingering corruption within our souls and that envy, it is a true and real thing. Uh, defines us and our behavior far more than we would like to believe. We confess our sin. We ask for forgiveness. Thank you for Jesus. And we ask that your spirit would work in us. Oh Lord, might we put to death these sinful desires of the flesh and might we be filled with holy desires. We know that's what it's going to be like in heaven. Lord, we wish to be prepared for it even now. May our hearts long for the things of heaven as opposed to longing 
for evil things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.